Joining us now, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so with that segue, Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files, talking about the other big story. We talked about Colts and Texans for win or go home in the playoffs, or I guess tie, but on Saturday. And then the Pacers will be at home taking on the Boston Celtics. But before that, they've got the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow night. They won in Milwaukee last night. Scott, I'll begin with this. I have been very impressed by the Pacers' ability to kind of tighten the screws defensively while not totally compromising their offensive side of things. Question is, is it sustainable? Yeah, I would agree with you that that's definitely been the dominant storyline over the last couple of weeks because what they've been able to do is, uh, makes games like last night possible when the offense just was not humming like it normally is. Uh, sustainable, yeah, I think to an extent. I think their overwhelming problem, as we discussed, is personnel. But I think right now we're seeing them make the most of the current situation and the current group of players. And you're seeing guys take some pride on the defensive. And you're seeing guys understand, I think, a little bit more of what they're trying to do. And schematically, they did some things differently last night in large part that ne- that negatively impacted Giannis, for example. They, they sent help to him. And I think they got away from that scheme that they were trying to narrow down for the first few months and now got a little adaptable um, and it's been productive. I think six of the last seven games, Jake, they've held teams under two or two 117 points or less. Remember they were given up 130 per game. So this on this four game win streak, the second of the season, that's where it starts. The Scott, the, the thing that as I was watching yesterday and you know, I, I still maintain is that they could use still a wing defender. OG Ananobi was the guy that so many people were, were honed in on that they were going to try to make a push for. Obviously, he ended up getting traded uh, to New York just before the Pacers played the Knicks. But how much in play or how, how deep into it do you think discussions continued with Ananobi after a flirtation possibly with him a year ago? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pacers were very interested in his archetype, including OG, who, by the way, they could have drafted like many other teams and passed on him. That's the one thing I always like to go back to. He was, he was just coming off an ACL, and now we know ACLs are, are routine. They keep you out a year, but it's not what it once was. But uh, I, I believe the Pacers were more interested in Pascal Siakam and still are. That's what I wrote back in July. Um, the, the trouble with all this is – you also one you have to work out a deal with the uh, the opposing team, but also you got to understand and be willing to offer and know the player would accept a potential deal in the summer because that's the other thing. OG is about to get paid this summer. Conveniently, he signed with a new agency six months ago. Conveniently, that agency has a big hand in what the Knicks are doing. So it's no surprise that those two teams got together and OG was involved there. Um, but in terms of the Pacers, they're going to keep trying to get that wing archetype. And it's got to be through trade, um, which is what this front office has been most successful at doing. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. Scott, you mentioned the, the personnel struggles the Pacers have had at times this year. Is that more trying to find the magic elixir, the right lineup to do what they want to do defensively? Or is that more there's just capped limitations of what this roster can do for where they want to go. Yeah, it's the latter, Jimmy, there. It's, it's limitations of, of the personnel. What you've seen is players like Andrew Nimhart and especially Aaron Neesmith rise to the top in terms of that end of the floor. Um, and then it, then there's been moments, right, where Obi Toppin has a good spurt. Benedict Matherin has a good defensive effort. We know every single game what you're going to get from guys like T.J. McConnell uh, on that end of the floor. But in doing so, it's more of a personnel thing here. And um, they did mix up the lineups a couple weeks ago um, to try to add size, add physicality, and that really came in in big use last night because that's a physical team that tries to overpower you, and I don't think this team let them. Even a guy like Isaiah Jackson coming off the bench wanted to to muck it up a little bit and and get into it in a good way. Um, I loved how T.J. McConnell responded to that uh, little thing where he tried to grab the ball from Bobby Portis. He got the technical. Guess what? He got the same thing late in the game, and it was McConnell who finished the game even on because of his de- or excuse me his offensive work. So um, to your question, Jimmy, it's it's it starts at the wing. The Pacers just have nobody that can really slow down by themselves. 
um, those elite wing players, the threes and fours. So that will be a personnel upgrade. But that doesn't mean this team cannot defend, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Pacers beat writer for Fieldhouse Files, Scott Agnes, joins us. Scott, you've covered the inner workings of this I don't know if rivalry is the right word, but dislike between the Pacers and the Bucks over the course of this season. At this stage, and Valley Sports had a great highlight package that kind of outlined everything that's happened to this point between these two teams. At this stage, is it more manufactured bad blood, or is there real dislike between these two? I think it's the intensity and, and the, the fun part of the matchup. I will not go as far as to call it a rivalry. In fact, I don't think there are many rivalries in the NBA yeah. right now. That's one thing I don't like is you just don't see the continued uh, meetings and bad blood that go into the postseason. And that's why I won't call it a rivalry. Pacers haven't won a playoff series since 2014. Until then, you really can't have a rivalry, I don't think. But the bad blood is definitely real. There's, I think I look at it right now as the Pacers are the up-and-coming team. They're a team in the division, so you face them a lot. You see them a lot. There's a lot of familiarity. It's Tyrese's hometown team, so he always has a big uh, crowd, and, and that's the game he loves is going back home to Wisconsin. Um, and so before this year, it, it wasn't even close to bad blood. It was, this, it was little brother because – the Bucks had dominated the series over the last like five years, winning by like 18 points per game. Now the Pacers have made it interesting because they are able to fight back and win back. But I can't go as far as a rivalry just yet, no. Scott, in terms of – Scott Agnes is our guest from Fieldhouse Files. Clearly the Pacers still have like another piece to the puzzle to be added. Um, my buddy Eric pointed out, and this was a good one. I mean, I had not thought of this guy, but guys like this and Andrew Wiggins, you know, uh, I don't know what happened to his game offensively, but he's, you know, he's another wing defender. I mean, there are guys out there, but they don't come for free. And so you've, if you were going to make a trade, you have to give up pieces. What piece or pieces, maybe I'm, I'm repeating questions we've discussed before, but there are some guys that I think have started to show some flashes where you're like, you know what, that is somebody that you want to ride with and roll with long-term here. So is there anybody you think that's kind of moved themselves into the we're not interested in moving category? And is there anybody that continues to kind of escalate in the he would be on the market category for them? Yeah, I don't know if anything has changed in that department just because the level in which uh, – a deal, the, the number of things that you would have to include to go get that player that everyone is after. Uh, it's the most coveted position in the league. That's why it hasn't come easily here for the Pacers. There's a lot of, a lot of other teams that want just the same thing. I'm not sure you can have enough of those six foot seven, six foot eight, eight wings. So any deal you're talking about more than likely will involve a couple of first round picks and probably a couple of players on the Pacers roster. You look at guys, uh, Either young opposing teams are either looking for young talent, or or if they're rebuilding, maybe they're looking for an expiring contract. So those are the sorts of things that other teams value. Um, I, you can point to Benedict Mather, and he'd be a, a player opposing teams would absolutely like. But it's also been intriguing over the last couple of weeks, or really the last week or so, to see him come alive. Some about the Bucks matchup is just special. He he matches that intensity, that physicality. Because wasn't he special last night? Like, that was a lot of fun For to sure. watch. That well, was the player they thought they were drafting. Scott, and here's what's so funny. That's kind of why I asked it, because I think a week ago we were talking, and I was saying, like, hey, is, is Matherin, you know, kind of molding into a player that has a skill set and is a nice player, but maybe doesn't fit exactly where they what they want from him and then something last like last night happens and you go man what an asset this is right it kind of but (laughs) with he and Halliburton it kind of reminds me of and I'm going to go on the way back here but when when the Pacers already had Chuck Person and then you could start to see the the growth of Reggie Miller it was like okay maybe at some point here they got to go with one or the other and it was Person they decided to flip into pieces Person to me feels kind of like Matherin in the style in which he plays. But if he can mesh with Halliburton, then you got something there. But I guess they've got to still kind of wade that through, if that makes sense. Totally. I completely agree. That's it. It's it's not what he, we know what he can, has the potential of doing. 
when you guys asked earlier about the lineups and personnel, that's, that's a guy I think who's still trying to figure out the balance of being a team player, of playing within the flow of the offense, and the guys he's, he's played alongside. I give him a lot of credit for evolving his game. Look, he had a career-high 13 rebounds last night. That was not something any of us expected, to be sure. The 25 points, absolutely. But to go after it, match up, be physical, get those rebounds, and, and in a game – where the Pacers actually out-rebounded the Bucks, where the Pacers easily scored more points in the paint on a game they didn't shoot well from three-point line, that's the versatility they got to like. But in terms of Ben, I, I think that's something they're still trying to figure out is the right, the right lineup for him, the right personnel on the floor, because he's gone from a starter to the bench. Um, it, it, that's the conundrum I think this coaching staff has had, and they haven't solved just yet. Scott, in the NFL – with skill position players, they often say that by about the time you get to year two or year three, that that's who the player is. They're not going to really evolve anymore. Maybe some nuance growth here or there, but eventually that, that's just who you are as a player. In the NBA, that's often not always the case, that it can take a couple of years for a rookie, and in this case a second-year player in Matherin, to find his own within the league. Are, are at this stage, with what we've seen from him in year two, this would still be reasonable growth, would it not? Or is this, well, maybe he's just not a good fit and maybe he might thrive elsewhere? No, I, I think he's barely shown the capabilities of yeah. what he could potentially do here. Donnie Walsh taught me years ago, you got to give guys at least three years to know what they are. Not what they could become, but at least what their baseline is. And bigs, maybe even throw another year, give it four years. That's why I wasn't so quick to count out Goga or count out Isaiah Jackson. Because the other thing, too, here is a lot of them are entering the league even younger than ever before. Those conversations with Dottie were when you were talking about guys coming out after three and four years. Now you're talking about, you know, Isaiah Jackson was drafted at 19. Like, he can't even drink yet. And he's being asked to do this, this, and this. And so, at Matherin, who's, who's 20, I think, right now, uh, I think he's. He, you'll see those big highs, where in comparison, Andrew Nimhart, a four-year guy at Gonzaga, is in the same system. I think he, on the other hand, you know kind of exactly what he is. The difference is he can improve upon those skills. I think Matherin can show flashes in areas we still haven't seen yet, most of all being defensive, and because he's never been asked to really defend. He's always been the best player on the floor, the most athletic player on the floor, the, the toughest who can just bully his way to the basket – now they're using him differently, and that's forced this development. And so going into this year, I was expecting a lot from him and Nemhard, by the way, because the one thing that does seem true is that that difference from year one to year two um, is a great deal once they understand what the NBA life is about, what they understand what the road travels, and the, how do you take care of your body. Maybe you hire a chef. Little things like that that can make a big difference. And these guys are 20 and 21 and just on the tip of – I think, starting to figure it out before they really blossom into what they could become. Look at Tyrese right now, 23. I wouldn't even say he's hit his peak just yet. He's just now entering that probably here in a year or two. Scott, you watch Saved by the Bell, right? We discussed Favorite this before. Favorite show of all time. Okay. When you – in Saved by the Bell with each character, like who's their love interest? Who's the So A.C. Slater's <laughs> primary love interest was Jesse, right? Yes. Okay. Did did he have? Didn't he occasionally? Kelly Didn't he and Kelly Kapowski have a thing a few times? They had a fling. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So so you know AC Sl- and I'm kind of the AC Slater here, right? Because I'm you know good looking, muscular, that kind of thing. Wrestler, um, absolutely. Although I've got a little bit of preppy in me too, but but here's the thing. So my love interest forever on this roster has been Aaron Neesmith, and and lately I'm starting to become like a little bit intrigued. Isaiah Jackson's kind of becoming my Kelly Kapowski here where I'm kind of getting a fling because I'm intrigued by him. And I think that he has really elevated himself in the last, I don't know, month or so. And we're starting to finally see with him what you're talking about. But I like the fact that Isaiah Jackson gives them some defensive boost, but also offensively, you don't have to run through him to get points. Am I, am I incorrect in and being kind of overly intrigued by both those young players that I think are going to be here for quite a long time. No, I don't think so. I would say Halliburton's kind of the Kelly Kapowski. He's the girl everybody wants. Well, for sure. 
Yeah, right? you're right. And but so I don't think Lisa Turtle, one, like like Lisa Turtle, never went out with anybody. Screech always wanted to go out with her, but she didn't date anybody, did she? Or am I wrong? I, nothing other than like formal dances. I don't think. No. <laughs> Right? Very, very similar to our dating careers at North Central, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, um, I, I, I do not. I think you're on the right track, though, for sure. Neesmith is a guy. I mean, you, we, we talk about this all the time after latest Pacer games. Is the fact that the Pacers were able to sign him to such a good deal, three years, thirty-three million, um, starting next year for the value he adds. That is incredible value at both ends of the floor. He didn't shoot it well last night. But he's always needed on that defensive end, and then Isaiah, with him so much, and it goes to uh, it goes to back to his youth and inexperiences. I think he's starting to get that confidence. He's one of those like myself that's a big overthinker, and I think he's tried to get tried to push that aside and just do what he's being asked to do out there. And I think that's the fruit of his labor that we're starting to see here. He's also he's a Michigan guy. He's not backing down to anyone either, and I think that's one thing that this team has missed among the personnel or trait is just the tough guy, the hard ass that just wants to go out, compete, battle, and, and not back at, down to anyone. I guarantee you, by the way, he woke up with the sorest hip of all time because that hit was so bad last night. I'm surprised uh, he was able to walk off the floor. That was a scary fall, but Isaiah has been so good. You're right. If they stand pat at the deadline, which is about a month and change out, if they stand pat, is the starting five we saw last night the best recipe for what they want to do? I think so. I go back and forth with Jalen Smith because teams are going to adapt the way in which they played. In a lot of ways, that's what they did last year, um, putting putting the big on, on Jalen Smith, and then that changes how the Pacers have to play offensively. Notice Miles had scored 20-plus points in the three previous meetings. They always leave him open. They leave him – um, he's a guy that can really maximize his play against the Bucks, for example. But with Jalen then next to him for the first time this season, Jalen was getting those looks. He didn't knock them down. So I'm, I do like the lineup. I think there's in certain circumstances, or if you get in a playoff series, maybe you would have to adapt and counter maybe what the opposing team does. Just because I thought we saw in a bigger sample size of about 25 games last year that the, the double big was good in spurts. I'm not sure it was it, it was there for the long term. What I really like is when they go a little smaller and it's Neesmith at that four spot. Maybe you have Bruce Brown, Andrew Nimhart. Um, to go back to, I think, the first question here, the, the, one of the biggest challenges with the personnel here is they have so many guys that are great on one, one side, right? Bruce Brown, you think more so defensively. Aaron Neesmith, you think of more defensively, although he's become a great three-point shooter. That's really been the crux of some of the Pacers' issues this season is which lineup do you want to trot out there? Is it favorable more offensively or defensively? With Jalen, I think you're looking more defensively, and it could present problems offensively uh, if more teams do what the Bucks did. I can't recall, Scott, when, when the Pacers re-signed Jalen Smith, and he kind of took a discount, right? If you remember to stay here, there was the thought that they were going to lose him. Uh, when is that deal up? Jalen Smith be, be, is able to hit the free agency market when? So he has a player option after this season. So he could enter free agency this upcoming summer, or he could come back and get a guaranteed, I think, $5.5 million. It was a three-year deal with that player option. Because has he played at a high enough level? I personally think he has at times. But has he played consistently enough that that – somebody's going to throw him big money and, and price the Pacers out of it for him. Well, one for one thing, it does feel like the Pacers need to pick a direction with some of the bigs. It's been this way for years, right? They finally moved on from, from Daniel Tice, after, they, which, after which they moved on from Goga Bataze. Um, they had way too many bigs. It partially feels like you have one too many of this archetype still, and you'd really like to – have uh, instead that 6'8 wing like we were talking about. Same is absolutely true for the backcourt, by the way. Uh, the overlap of Benedict, of Buddy, of Bruce Brown, um, for example. Even Ben Shepard can't even get on the floor, and he's, he'd be solid uh, at both ends of the floor already. So I, I think uh, one of those backup bigs could be 
uh, extendable in terms of moving on from expendable, excuse me. Um, but at the right price, like at five million, of course you'd take Jalen back. Now I can't imagine anyone would offer something so significant that the Pacers couldn't match. The Pacers have the most cap space in the league today, and, and moving forward, they have a great flexibility. Um, Jalen's a guy, by the way, too. Before even Isaiah took off, Jalen's game has took. No, has he's taken been a really off. important piece he's for done them. Well, right? Yeah, and, and I think what's been a Here's what I've noticed, Scott. Miles Turner's a great defender. At the very least, he's a very good defender. But I think Miles Turner's a very good defender who then becomes a great defender when he's got Jalen Smith or Isaiah Jackson alongside him because he doesn't. I think sometimes Miles Turner gets a little bit out of position where he feels like he's got a rim protect like the entire circumference. But if he feels like one of those guys is beside him to have his back on the weak side. Then he then he takes a little more chance and his rim protection becomes a little more involved, and I just think that he's really blossomed as Turner with the growth of those two guys. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because one thing I was watching the first month and a half or so, and it's a little bit understandable coming to a new team, is a lot of what I think you're referencing was Obi Toppin being out of position defensively. So Miles would try to overcorrect it. I remember uh, I think it was in New York. I remember on the right arc. He was calling out a switch. Obi didn't switch, so then Miles had to slide over. He tried to get the guy, got him late. The guy made a dunk and was fouled by Miles. It makes Miles look bad, but it was actually Miles trying to be in the right spot and overexerting himself to correct the problem there. So um, I think that, that has improved in time, and you're right. With what you've seen from Jalen and Isaiah elevating their games defensively, they all present something a little bit different. And I think that's what jumps out about each one of these guys. Obi, it's the finish at the rim, three-point shooting. Jalen, it's his, more, his, his pick and roll play, his three-point shooting. And Isaiah, I think just his toughness and his, his, his wingspan and ability to also finish at the rim. He, he's a better defender, I, I would say, than Jalen, whereas Jalen presents more offensively. Scott, I know that this is not the playoffs, clearly, and it's hard to you know mix and simulate that type of schedule environment during the course of the regular season. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. But you are going to get the opportunity right now and then next week against Boston to see a team take a night off and then see them again. Where will adjustments be on both sides when action shifts to Gamebridge and the Bucks try to rewrite things that happened and went wrong in Pfizer uh, last night? Yeah, I always love these kind of, I call them weekend series or, you know, home and home is this one in particular. The Boston's, Boston series at the end of the week is just uh, both games at home. You, you will see some tweaks, but yes, to your point, nothing extensive like a, a playoff series. I'll be curious what Damian Lillard looks like because in a couple of games against the Pacers, he just has not looked like himself. Last night, one for nine from three, 13 points. A lot of that, too, credit to some of the Pacers defenders, Aaron Neesmith, even T.J. McConnell. Uh, got pesky with him, I think, late in the game there. There are not going to be many times the Pacers play the Bucks, and Giannis and Dane combined for just 43 points. Remember, Giannis scored 64 by himself in the last meeting. So a lot of it is those shots and those guys catching fire a little bit. Um, and the other thing is you'll, you'll see some tweaks. I'll be curious of how the Pacers continue to defend Giannis and then what countermeasures the Bucks will have after seeing that on tape and so quickly. Because playing them in back-to-back games allows for you to dive just a little bit deeper in your pregame um, prep and all of that stuff. Because normally, let's be real, during a regular season, a lot of it for the players, they're getting the prep the day of, going through it during a shoot-around, a walkthrough, reading the, the pages of notes that the coaching staff gets prepared for them. Uh, in a playoff series, you're locking in because you have that time to do so and it's the same personnel each night okay scott somebody just sent me this it's good i'm going to read it to you you ready we can we can do this in unison rank one through six one being the most likely and six being the least likely one through six rank the players most likely to be with the pacers after the trade deadline okay bruce brown obi toppin jalen smith tj mcconnell and buddy healed it's a lot of names i realize the guy fine, on that the guy on that list most likely to be with them after the trade deadline. Brown, most Toppin, Smith, the, McConnell, and Buddy. Most likely, I would say is Jalen Smith of that group. Okay, I would say T.J. McConnell, Bruce Brown, a close second. That'd be my thought. The guy least likely to be on the roster after the day, the deadline. Brown, Toppin, Smith, McConnell, Buddy. <laughs> 
I'll go Bruce Brown. I think there's a playoff. There will be a playoff team that is willing and wants to take him on for the playoff push. And he's a free agent at the end of the year as well, right? Essentially, the players yeah, player have, option. Excuse right. me, the Pacers have the team option, which at twenty three million is a little steep here. So I I would have a hard time thinking they pick that up. Therefore. He would then become a free agent. Scott, happy New Year to you. I hope you rang it in uh, in a fun fashion, and it's going to be a busy week. So look forward to uh, talking to you again next week. And then, of course, Pacers and Bucks back at the Fieldhouse tomorrow night. I know you'll be covering all of it for Fieldhouse Files. Appreciate the time. Hope you didn't stay right, out too you. late. <laughs> I was all good. I was following Uncle Jake's taxi service. Heck yeah. There you go, baby. I'd have given you a ride. I'd even picked you up if you'd gone up to Milwaukee last night. One of my favorite cities. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk to you. All right. Thanks, guys. So we're going to pretend it's Monday, and we're going to pretend it's 1230. How's that? That was two lies and a truth. That's right. It's Well, it's kind of like on New Year's at ABC when they were two minutes behind. I'm like, what are we doing here? It's 12.02. Drop the thing by now. Uh, joining us now on the program, he is the radio voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, Don Fisher. Joining us, Don, first off, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, you guys. Uh, obviously, I hope yours was as fun as mine was. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I'll tell you, hey, listen, Don, I've reached the age where I'm just happy to see a new New Year. I, not even from a health standpoint, as I always say, when you're in the line of work and the career that I've had, you just get excited to be able to put another year on the resume so it looks like you work somewhere longer. That's, that's the way I look at it. So I'll take it, well, right? Trust me, we all look at it that way. <laughs> that's right. Hey, um, let's begin with this. I, I'm listening to you call the Kennesaw State game since we've talked last. And right out of the box, you're calling McKenzie and Baco. And I can kind of tell as you're saying, you know, he lets a three fly. You, you can tell in your voice that you're thinking, okay, this is going in. Like he's, he's finding rhythm. And for a young player that was brought in, we've kind of been waiting for this, right? To see him just get on court. Cause you knew that he had the stroke, but it just was the confidence, I guess, if anything else, um, has he turned a corner McKenzie and Baco in terms of now perhaps providing some consistent outside shooting that Indiana covets. I think from a shooting perspective, he absolutely has. Uh, I'm not sure that he's turned the corner in a couple of other areas simply because, hey, you know, after he got off to that hot start, he scores 14 points in what about eight minutes. And then we don't basically don't see him the rest of the ball game. He actually played a total of uh, 14 minutes in the contest. So there was obviously something else there that Mike was not happy with. Uh, and my suspicion is that it was the defensive end more than anything else. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, in the answer to your question, absolutely, I think he's turned the corner. He's been in double figures, I believe now, five straight ball games and and he is he's an he's the best outside shooter there's no question about that um and he is he's found his stroke uh now he just needs to get the rest of it together because if he does he's going to be dynamic the rest of the season also it goes without saying don that when you know we knew going into that game that khalil Ware was under the weather was not going to be able to go i, I assume by the way that that he returns to the lineup. I, let me know if there's news on that. But but I thought Malik Renew, uh, as he has done this year, when the, when was really needed, has continued to show just a veteran presence about him and continues to, to show, obviously, why he's a guy that I think might be the one that they can most rely on game in to game out. Your thoughts on his performance? Well, and you heard me say this before this year. I believe he's the most improved player from a year ago off this roster, uh, without question. He's made dynamic improvement in so many different areas. He still gets in a little bit too much foul trouble because he tends to reach rather than just guard with his body a little bit. But at the same time, his consistency as a scorer at this point has just been pretty dramatic. Obviously, the game before against North Alabama, he hits four out of four from the three-point line which nobody was anticipating. And he's, he's a good outside shooter, but he's not that good an outside shooter, at least that we've seen in the past. Uh, and that said, he, he still knocked one down in, in the game uh, this past week against Kennesaw State. So he is playing his best basketball of his career at this point. His footwork continues to be excellent. He, he finishes around the basket better than anybody I've seen in Indiana in many years now. And that includes Trace, because if you remember – in the last couple of years, or actually all four years he was there, there would be some buddies that he just let get away from him. 
Uh, Malik Renew has rarely done that. I mean, he hits just about everything he puts up from about eight feet in. And uh, without question, uh, like I said before, I think he's the most improved player. And right now he's playing the best of anybody on the court. Voice the Hoosiers, Don Fisher is our guest. Don, you had the chance as you do every post game to talk with Coach Woodson. And I know you highlighted a bit in one of your earlier answers, but it was their defensive areas that frustrated him the most after the win. For you and from that conversation, how much of that was felt by the absence of Khalil Ware and how much of it was just their overall perimeter defense in that matchup? I think it was more uh, perimeter defense that uh, I don't think it is, I don't think Khalil had a thing to do with three point shots going up and not right, and being right. made. They hit they hit seventeen threes in the ball game. <laughs> We're talking about Kennesaw now. They hit seventeen threes in the contest, uh, and Khalil doesn't usually he's not usually out right. there on the floor right. guarding the three point line. So there's no question these guys are still struggling at times to deal with the three-point line and their defensive play. And it's it's at times it's looked really good. Uh, the North Alabama game, or actually I take that back, the Moorhead State game, the last eight minutes of that ball game because Moorhead State was lighting them up from the three-point line on the last eight-plus minutes in that contest, they shut them down. They didn't hit another three the rest of the ball game. So they're capable of doing that, but they haven't done it on a consistent basis thus far. And I think that's the most frustrating uh, thing for this coaching staff. And, and Mike has alluded to it many times. You can't give up 87 points and win very many basketball games, which is what they did against Kennesaw State. 10-3 and three, Indiana now into Big Ten plays. As a matter of fact, it begins at Nebraska. Well, it begins now in terms of for the rest of the year. Uh, at Nebraska, who's 11-2, and two, that is a 9 o'clock tip. That game tomorrow night, right, is when right. the Hoosiers in Nebraska get underway. So, Don, now that they're in – you know, done with the 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 non-conference scheduling. Two-part question for you. The first would be this. Of the teams that you have seen, the blueprint or the style of play that most gives Indiana fits would be what kind of a team that Indiana, it looks like, still has work to do in terms of a style where they are susceptible. Well, the pressure has bothered them uh, at times this year. Um and, and part of that is due to the fact that Xavier Johnson hasn't been there. Um, I, I just think getting X back, and I think maybe he'll be back for this ball game. at least the indication has been all along that they were going to keep him out as long as needed to get that foot back 100 uh, percent. I think he could I know he practiced last week before the Kennesaw State game some. He did have some contact in that practice. Uh, I don't know how much he's practiced since that time. But my gut feeling is everything has been just cautionary as they could possibly be to get kid X back 100% at this point in the season because they know they're going to need him in Big Ten play the rest of the year. And I I think that's a big factor for this ball club from a defensive standpoint. I think that's a key. Uh, And, and of course, he can also bring the ball up the floor as well as anybody in the country. So I, I think pressure against Indiana has come, sometimes come to be a problem, and it certainly was against Kennesaw State because they turned the ball over 18 times in that game. When you consider what they did in that contest from a ball handling standpoint, it wasn't very good at times, and yet they scored 100 points. So you got to be pleased. Like You can't be too necessarily negative about what's going on with this ball club other than the fact that their defensive play has been the most up-and-down part of their game thus far this season. So the other side of my question there, there, Don, Don Fisher, the voice of the Hoosiers, is our guest. And maybe not having Xavier Johnson in there has benefited them. If there's one way that it would be, it would be this. And that is that they were forced to maybe play different ways. So during the course of the non-Big Ten schedule, how many different styles can Indiana play? Do they have offensive versatility based on looks that they see? Or are they basically, this is what we do and what we run, and you've got to try to shut it down? Well, I think because they've started to hit the three-point shot, they're more versatile than they have been. I really believe that. Uh, the last two ball games, they knocked in 50% and 48%, I believe it was, uh, in the game uh, against Kennesaw State. And they, they took more three-pointers. Because of that, they opened up the floor. And so I still think that Indiana's primary strength is going down low with the basketball and being an inside-out basketball team. If they can perform that way from the three-point line 
and they're not going to shoot 50% in most games now from the three-point line. But if they can knock down 35 to 38% of their threes and take enough of those, I think it forces the other team to come out on the floor, and that just makes the inside game even that more – that's much more effective. So I just – right now, I still think that they're an inside-out ball club. I still think that they've got to take advantage of the bigs inside – Khalil Ware did not have two very good ball games preceding the Kennesaw State game in which he was out. Uh, So he's got to get back going again, but part of that could have been the fact that he was dealing with illness at that point as well. We'll just have to wait and see. Indiana and Nebraska tomorrow night, 9 o'clock tip. Our sister station over on 93 WIBC, Don Fisher, will be on the call to call that game of, by the way, a team that Don had mentioned he thinks is really well coached with what Fred Hoiberg's done with the Huskers so far this year. Again, Don, Happy New Year. Appreciate the time today and travel safe, all right? Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All right, again, Don Fisher. Happy New Year to all of you. 2024 underway. First show of the year, second day of the year. Jimmy Cook's second day after turning 29 years old. First day after turning 29 years old. And, of course, on New Year's Eve, the Colts and... The Las Vegas Raiders were playing at Lucas Oil Stadium, which meant a long workday for Stephen Holder, which is good because it meant no lap- lampshades on his head and running around Monument Circle bonging beers, which is what he did last New Year's Eve. And he joins us now on the program from ESPN. Stephen, Happy New Year to you. Hey, Happy New Year. Uh, wait, what did you say I was doing last year? I missed that. <laughs> Beer bonging and running around with a lampshade on your head, right? Well, I mean, if you say so. I mean, if I was doing that, I probably wouldn't remember, so... I can't dispute it. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> well, hey, actually, I could go – if I wanted to, I could go into saying that as a Miami Hurricanes fan, you probably just want to rule out and black out like the last month of the college football season anyway. So why not, you know, although I shouldn't say anything, Clemson didn't exactly live up to the year. But um, hey, listen, neither one of us covered ourselves in glory, so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> All right, let me ask you this before we get to the Colts because it's a big one. Um, but – Knee-jerk answer off the top of your head without analyzing. Michigan or Washington, who wins a national title? Mm. I think I think Washington, but I don't know. I don't feel great about the pick, but I, I'm just going to say Washington. I, you know, great offense goes – I think great offense beats um, maybe a slightly lesser offense. It's not, it's not bad offense, but I just think – I don't know. That's a lot of firepower over this, put it that way. I would agree. And, and you know what? Kudos to Washington because a lot of people thought their schedule is what got them there, and they, right. they kind of proved it wrong. All right, Stephen, here we are. Uh, win or go home for the Colts and the Texans. Yeah. Let's begin with the first thing, which is now that we know this game is on Saturday and not Sunday, does that in any way, shape, or form change the week approach from the Colts and just in terms of how they go about things and getting set for it? Yeah, I think that it can. Uh, it, it accelerates it, certainly. And it's not a big change, but it, it gives them less rest. That's for sure. I mean, they're back in the building today. They're not doing a full-fledged practice, uh, but they had not been doing that on, on Wednesdays anyway. Um, so they'll have to actually uh, be back in, I say pads, but you know, back in, in somewhat of a physical practice tomorrow. They'll walk through today, practice tomorrow, um, and Thursday, and then, you know, that final walkthrough on Friday. So two things. Number one, it gives the coaches much less time to prepare uh, for to prepare their game plan. And, and that's a big thing because normally they, they, have, uh, they have Monday to look back and then Tuesday to look ahead so that when the players get in the building on Monday morning, they're ready to roll. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning. So in this particular case, you've got to have everything going. Um, you've got to have – you basically cut that timeline in half. You have Monday, essentially. So that is – that's an issue. And it, particularly because you didn't have any warning about this. Now, if you have, for example, we talk about the, the term, quote-unquote, short week in the NFL a lot, right? Now, if you have a, a Thursday night game coming up in a couple of weeks – you'd start doing some of that preparation well in advance so that when that week gets here, you're already kind of ahead of the game. In this instance, they didn't find out that they were playing um, on a shortened week until the last minute. So, you know, both teams have the same disadvantage, so it is what it is, but, but it, does, it does not help. Colts beat writer for ESPN, Stephen Holder, joins us. Stephen, is it a bridge too far to say the following? 
because of how they limited Max Crosby and Malcolm Kuntz, the Colts are ready for just about anything in the trenches for their offensive line, both against Houston and however long the season lasts after that. I don't know if it's a bridge too far. I would say that that Braden Smith definitely proved his worth. Uh, Braden Smith was was huge for them because I think he had a lot to do with Max Crosby's um, lack of impact on that game. He got a couple of rushes where I was like, oh boy, here it comes. And, and it really didn't translate into him having a, a strong day. He certainly had a couple of plays in the running game. I mean, he's going to have that. You're not going to shut down Max Crosby. But given given what they did the previous week uh, against Atlanta's front, it was a concern. There's no doubt about it. And they answered the bell. And Braden Smith, I, I don't think I'm the first person to necessarily share this, but Braden Smith physically, you know, that was his first game back, I think after three or four games out of the lineup with a knee injury. Braden Smith was a wreck physically, okay? He had to fight through that game. I do think he felt some pressure to play, not from the team per se. I, I just think he, he knew it was a big game. He'd been out a while. His team needed him. That guy fought through that game. Uh, after the game was over and, and most players had already showered, this guy was just sort of dragging himself to the shower. It was a hell of a scene, to be honest with you. And, you know, I tried to kind of ask him about it, and he kind of downplayed it and acted like it was no big deal, but that's what he does. So I give him credit. You know, I think – you gain an appreciation for what these guys go through. Look, he makes $17 million a year. So I'm not, I'm not throwing a pity party for Braden Smith. However, you definitely do gain an appreciation when you get a front row seat like that, where you can just tell like a guy dragging himself to the shower is just killing him physically just to get there. And, but thank God he did because he was a huge difference in that game for the Colts. Stephen Holder is our guest from ESPN talking about the Colts and the Texans. Steven, you've covered the NFL a long time, so I want to ask you this. Which is more likely or or I guess easier to do? If you have a depleted defensive backfield, is it easier to make up for that with an aggressive pass rush or if you have a an inept defensive pass rush, is it easier to make up for that if you have a lockdown defensive backfield? Hmm. So that's a great question. I, okay, here's, here's how this works. So if you've got the, if you've got the, the solid secondary that covers guys up, you know, you're going to buy your pass rush a little more time. If you, if you have the, the pass rush, a good pass rush, they're going to theoretically speed up the, uh, the passing game, speed up the quarterback and have to make him throw the ball before he wants, right? I'm not breaking new ground here, but just kind of setting the ground rules. If I had to choose, I mean, I think it depends on the quarterback. There's variables here, right? It depends on the quarterback. It depends on, you know, who he's throwing the ball to all those things. But I, I think with, uh, with CJ Stroud in particular, so just to make it about this game, personally, I, I think you need to be able to cover because he's, he's a guy who's going to get the ball out. He's got no problem dropping back and, and finding his reads. He makes his reads and he gets the ball out, you know, relatively quickly. And, and so for him to do that, the, the pass rush is not always going to get there. Now he has taken a lot of hits this year. So when he, when he has tried to stretch the field, he has had to sit in the pocket at times. Uh, so there might be some opportunities, but, but I do think if the pass rush starts getting to him, he can speed things up and they can get the ball out quicker. So, you're going to have to cover. Now, the bad news for the Colts is I don't trust their secondary. You just don't, and I don't think you can. They clearly don't trust their secondary <laughs> because of the way they have been using them and, and their reluctance you know, to, to do some, some things outside the box that might put a strain on those guys. So uh, it's kind of, it, is what it, it is one of those situations where you know, what you see is what you get. Steven, we can say until the cows come home, you know, that, that here is this game of this huge magnitude, national television, Aikman and Buck, flex to Saturday night, all of it, and that C.J. Stroud is a rookie, advantage Indianapolis, but 
Can we say that about a guy this far into the season? Are there still rookie players at this point, or has C.J. Stroud seen about everything you can throw at him? I don't look at him that way. I mean, I think he's the exception to the rule. I do think most rookies, I mean, you know, you look at like Will Levis, for example. Now, they're not on the same level, right? One guy was the second pick in the draft. The other guy fell to the second round. But I'm just saying, you know, Will Levis hasn't played all year, certainly. But but when he has played, you see the rookie indications when he plays, right? He makes good plays, and then he makes some other plays where you're like, oh, my God. (laughs) And I think C.J. Stroud has – surprisingly few of those types of plays, which is what's been so uh, amazing to watch, you know, you particularly from quarterbacks. I mean, just because they handle the ball with such frequency that their mistakes are magnified. So you're looking for the mistakes. He doesn't make that many. And it shows like in the, the interceptions, for example, I mean, I don't know what his current numbers are. I haven't looked in a little bit, but I mean, he has been very consistent in limiting the interceptions this year. And, I mean, that's, that in itself tells you a lot. I mean, you're going to make a bad read sometimes or you're going to get fooled by coverage and all those things. And those are all the things that lead to turnovers. Rookie quarterbacks turn the ball over. And this guy hasn't done it. And that tells you a little bit about, you know, his command, his understanding, his vision, his, you know, his mastery of the system, all of that, and, and then his ability to read uh, what he's seeing from the defense. What percent of healthy is Jonathan Taylor? Good question. Uh, he was clearly not 100% on Sunday. You know, he was in and out of the game. And, you know, there was never really any true injury report. But I saw him in the blue tent, the injury tent, on, on at least one occasion. Uh, he came out of the game at very uh, critical moments, which I think tells you everything. Uh, if you look at the, the third and one play where they went the play action and then threw it deep to Alec Pierce for the touchdown, Jonathan Taylor was not on the field that on that particular play. Now, if you're saying Steichen and you're really trying to fool the defense into thinking this is going to be a, a, a run 100%, wouldn't you put Jonathan Taylor out there? So I have to assume, this is me assuming, I'll be clear, it's not a report, but I mean, I have to assume he was banged up on that play among others. So I don't know what the number is, but it is not 100%, and it might not be close to 100%. Uh, he's he's clearly not himself, but I would say uh, he still really impacted that game on Saturday uh, on Sunday. He, he really, really did, and it felt like a lot of other games with Jonathan Taylor this year, where he was one step away from taking one to the house on a couple of occasions. We just haven't gotten that run from him this year. You know that 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 sort of Sports Center top ten play that he gained a reputation for honestly you know a couple of years ago he he has not had that play this year for the most part but he's been very very close and i gotta think you know with each week maybe he's getting closer so let's see uh, let's see if it happens i mean this will be a great time for that to happen espn Stephen holder is our guest colts in a win and you're in situation this saturday night against the texans you mentioned where stroud's numbers are at 21 touchdowns to five picks in 14 games for him on the year. And you mentioned not a ton of out-of-this-world plays, one long of 75, but like you mentioned, it's been a variety of different ways, not necessarily just wow moments, but he's definitely a wow player as far as rookie standards are concerned. So when you look at this week, Stephen, what's more important to the Colts? Being able to get home with four on Stroud or Kenny Moore being available on Saturday? Hmm. That is a good question. I, I, I think Kenny Moore is critical for sure. Um, I, I just think that they don't have a lot of playmaking right now in their secondary, particularly after Julian Blackman went down. You know, the two guys who, who were making plays on the football you know, on, a, on a somewhat consistent basis were Julian Blackman and Kenny Moore. I mean, the, the, the Carolina game for Kenny Moore is obviously the, the greatest example. Uh, a once-in-a-lifetime performance, two pick-six touchdowns. You know, look, you're not going to have that every week, but it does speak to his knack for the football, uh, his ability to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, those things are not accidental. They happen because he's a guy with great instincts. It happens because he's a guy who understands – uh, route combinations and what the offense is attempting to do. 
and and studies as well, by the way, you know, so he can anticipate some things uh, before they happen. None of that stuff is accidental. So the experience that he brings, given what else is out there, you absolutely need Kenny Moore. I think it was really close. It was very close for him to play on Sunday. Uh, There was what they described as a game time decision. They worked him out before the game and just couldn't go. So I was surprised. I didn't realize the extent of that injury because he had practiced for most of the week, but that was a lingering injury. Kenny told me later, it was a lingering injury from the Atlanta game, which I did not realize before, uh, before Sunday. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, I think he has a really good chance of playing this week, but that, that definitely hurt them on Sunday. Steven, on a 1-10 to 10 scale, Steven Holder, ESPN, is our guest. 10 being the most, 1 being the least. Uh, what was your level of, like, concern, intrigue, et cetera, that everything was going to go to hell in a handbasket on Y2K? Like, from night, like on, on New Year's Eve of 99, how many precautions did you take when you left the house thinking, like, oh, oh, okay, just in case there's no power? Like, what was your level of, of intrigue? That's a great question. I can't remember like really small details of what I did. Like I don't remember where I was that New Year's Eve, but I I do remember that being you know the one of the one of the, like the milestone stories of your lifetime. You know that oh I remember everybody was talking about that story. That was one. Um, I probably stayed home now that I think about it because I don't remember like being out somewhere and, and being afraid something was going to happen. Cause I think I was probably terrified and stayed home. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm like relatively sure I didn't even leave the house that night. So that might answer the question. Maybe I, I didn't have the, uh, the nerve to actually go out there and, and risk it. <laughs> so I stayed home, but I think a lot of people probably did. You know? I it remember was- the one thing I did. And I remember when I was doing it thinking like, am I an idiot here? but it kind of fell in the category of why not was I filled up the bathtub with water because I remember they were like, they were like, you know, there's the, the there's the chance that like water's not going to run it, it, you know, right. the power is going to go off. And I, I thought, you know what? Like, I don't want to not have water. So that was the one was thing tough. I did. And then after the fact, I was like, okay, I was kind of an idiot. And, and I also didn't think, here's the other thing. It was weird, Steven. So like you're, you're going out for on new year's Eve, at, at six o'clock and you're like gosh i don't know if like the world's going to shut down and you don't realize well half the world has already changed midnight and nothing <laughs> happened true. you know what i mean <laughs> but, that is true like if we had had social media back then we would have you know seen tweets from like shanghai right where people were like yeah it's fine over here <laughs> <laughs> right so we would have known like hold on this yeah. whole thing's a farce this whole yeah. y2k thing is all a farce right but the interesting thing was though like for those you know who are too young to remember it you know what's funny is you know nowadays we, there's so many like conspiratorial things out there so much bs and and you might think it falls into that category but no this was not that like you know you turn the news on and peter jennings was talking about this stuff correct on, on evening news and it for was like months. hey listen folks like this is a big deal you pay attention so, it, you know, the government was talking about it. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't, like, out there. It was, it was a big deal. Uh, Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, this game between the Texans and the Colts, and, and I don't. this is going to sound weird in the way I ask this, but which of these two teams, I guess, is better constructed for this to be legitimate? In other words, if somebody were to make a comp- – if this was the college football playoff committee, and you were analyzing between Houston and Indianapolis, and you had to pick one of the two that has had the more legitimate, on their own, deservant record versus they had weeks where they went against backup quarterbacks or the ball fell their way every time, et cetera. Uh, Indianapolis has had a little bit of that this year, admittedly. Has Houston as well, or is Houston kind of better prepared for this moment, if that makes sense? Right, right. Uh, so, all right, well, let's, let's think about this. I mean, what is the Houston Texans, I don't know, biggest win, you know what I mean? Like if you, if you go down their schedule, I, I, I would say being the Jaguars early, I would, I'll give them credit. That's a, that's a good win. But I mean, 
now I feel a little differently about the Jaguars right now, to be completely honest with you. So I don't even know what to make of that. I would say they have kind of the same quality of wins as the Colts, to be completely honest with you. You know, so when you, I've thought about this. When you think about these matchups, a lot of times we say, okay, the quarterback matchup, how does that shake out? And often, you know, you look at it, the the Colts and, or excuse me, the the Texans in this game, you'd say, you know what? I, I like CJ Stroud over Gardner Minshew. However, and, and, and by the way, the reason we say that is because the quarterback, just by virtue of having the ball on every snap, you have the most ability to impact the game, right? However, however, it's a fair, it's a fair argument to say that top to bottom, the Colts, have maybe a stronger roster. I don't, I'd have to take a closer look to really feel good about making this argument. But I think if you look at the Colts, I mean, you know, they've had some, they've had some struggles here and there, but like I, I, they're both their both of their lines, offensive and defensive line. I like them generally. And I think those are strengths of their team. That's, that's a very important thing, right? For the Texans, their offensive line somewhat because of injuries has been very, uh, very up and down this year. And CJ Stroud's gotten hit a lot, which is, you know, which, which sort of undermines that quarterback advantage sometimes. Right. So that's the first thing. Then I look at, uh, I look at, for example, uh, the, the playmakers. I actually don't think it's, you know, you look at like Jonathan Taylor and, and Zach Moss, Michael Pittman, uh, the, the Texans really had, um, they, they struck a little bit of gold at wide receiver this year, but they're down, you know, one of their big weapons there right now. I don't know. I mean, I think that they're, they're pretty evenly matched, you know, in terms of the playmakers to some degree. So I don't know, I guess, you know, the Colts probably don't have, they have a disadvantage in the secondary and somewhere like that, for example. But I mean, look, uh, I would say the two lines, um, the, the, in the trenches, I, I give the Colts the edge here. I really do. And I, I think that matters a lot. Even though the Texans were really strong, uh, their defensive line had a great performance on Sunday. I think the Colts, look, they're top five in sacks this year. I mean, they have consistently uh, been pressuring quarterbacks, which is not something I have ever said in my time covering the Colts. So i got to give them a lot of credit for that. I mean, look, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a perfect answer, but, but I wouldn't discount the Colts. I, I don't. I wouldn't give the Houston Texans too much credit. I give them credit, but I don't know that I give them more credit than the Colts uh, for their path to their 9-7 and record. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com joins us. Stephen, we live in overreaction society, so regardless of what happens, there's going to be think pieces, there's going to be takes, regardless of if it's Colts or Texans, that secure a playoff spot. But when you mention that, that you feel like it's closer than people want to say in terms of the roster construction – in terms of what these teams are capable of, is it too aggressive to think then, well, then this is a game the Colts should win? Because I, I know they're, they opened as favorites, and I know that when you look at this, it's easy to say, Colts bad secondary, C.J. Stroud good quarterback, roll credits. When you look at it, though, if you see it balanced, is it fair to say, no, this is a game they should win despite the injuries they've had, despite it being Gardner Minshew's show and not Anthony Richardson's due to injury? Is that a fair statement to say? Um, I would say I, I don't think it's I don't think it's ridiculous to think that or let me rephrase that I don't think it's ridiculous that the Colts are a favorite is that still the case has that moved at all are they still the favorite I think they I are. I believe so yes um, yeah so I, I don't think that's ridiculous and, and look here's here's part of the reason I would say is that I mean Houston is well let me rephrase that Indianapolis is a young team but they also have some, some really key veterans, too, who have been in these situations before. They are not favored um, anymore, by the way. Uh, Houston is one-point favorites. Oh, so that flipped then. Yep. That flipped. Okay, interesting. So anyway, um, but that being said, like, I still don't think it was ridiculous. I mean, they're at home, by the way. Like, hello, does, does that not matter? <laughs> they are at home. And so a primetime game at home, I mean, come on. That, that, that has to matter, like, a lot. It has to matter a lot. I think the home crowd had a big uh, impact on just the past game this past Sunday, for example. Um, so I give I give a lot of 
I put a lot of stock in that. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, if they lose, is it another addition to the long list of shortcomings the last five years, or is there grace that should be given, assuming it's not like a blowout or they didn't show up type of performance? Oh, I give them grace. I, I do. I mean, exactly. They have to show up, and they got to, you know, you can't go out. You can't go out like a sucker, right? You, know, you got to show up. And I think if they do that, and it's and it's the kind of game we anticipate, I'm fine with any outcome. I, I think it's fine. I mean, the, the Texans at least have their quarterback. <laughs> okay, so like let's let's remember that. And I think that that has to be factored in here. Um, I I do think they have both overachieved at a similar level this year. Nobody expected anything from either team. Um, so I don't know. I, yeah, I'm fine with any outcome as long as it's a competitive game. They're both, you know, pretty good teams. Here's the thing. This is going to be fun for years to come now. Um, this division, frankly, is, is going to be a beast to deal with, you know, for these, at least these three. And then we'll figure out what the Tennessee Titans are, I guess, uh, next season. But for now, there's three teams in this division that, unless I'm mistaken, unless we're wrong about them, I mean, this is going to be a fight every year. And things have completely flipped in this division now. And, and it, it's, it's funny because the Colts haven't won it since 2014, and now it, winning it's going to be harder than ever, you would think. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens moving forward. Steven, this year at the beginning of the year, and, and I'm going to bring up a point here that I'll probably bring up every day between now and Saturday, and I, I don't want to, but my brain, I, I can't rule this out, okay? <laughs> so I want you to tell me if I'm way off base here. This year for me, at the be- going back to Grand Park, it was okay. For the first time in you know whatever it is, eleven years, the Colts are going with a new, turn the page, clear the edge of sketch franchise quarterback, and everything is about the development, the comfort level, the learning process of the franchise quarterback. He gets hurt. They have, to their credit absolutely had a a very good year above what was expected and that's wonderful and Gardner Minshew's played well for them for the most part and the supporting cast has played well but if this year was about those things for Anthony Richardson is it possible that what they have done is actually set back the calendar because they've made it that much more of a challenge based on the spotlight the focus the expectation and the schedule that will come with it for Anthony Richardson's true debut season? Mm. Uh, I mean, if they haven't, if, if that ends up being the case, um, it's not anybody's fault is the one thing I'd say. But I, I get what you're saying. Will the schedule be harder? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I, it might, but this will certainly... I, let me rephrase that. It feels to me like, like next year... You're saying the... his, he's gonna, his growing pains will have to come... Um, while you know, at a time when when they should be further down the road, I guess. My, my point being, his growing pains may come now in a season that has with it expectation attached to it. Whereas right. it's a lot easier to go into it with, with in a season where there's zero expectation, and so now all of a sudden, like the every mistake he makes is going to be magnified more now because they're going to go into next year as right. a postseason favorite. I get it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, that that actually could be true. That could be true. I, I don't think they would change any of this. So, um, I agree with that. Of that. But that's probably still – that doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, look, Anthony Richardson, I think the best part about this season was going to be the ability for him to, to – to make mistakes and grow. And, and the, one that, the one thing that's great about him is that he does grow from his mistakes. I think even though he played very little, we saw it in training camp. We saw it in the preseason. Like, he would see things, and, and Shane Steichen and others talked about this, and he would immediately understand what he did wrong. You know, it's like when you're raising a kid. They make mistakes. They screw up. They do things that are wrong, and you have to correct them. You have to, you have to teach them and train them. And then sometimes they do it again and again and again, right? Uh, Anthony Richardson's not that guy. He's, he's a pretty perceptive guy, quick learner. Um, definitely takes the knowledge onto the field the next time to avoid those mistakes. So I think 
that would have, that would have served him very well this year where you could see the growth throughout the season. I think it would have been really enjoyable to see him go from week one to week 18 and to see what that finished product would have looked like. I mean, you've seen it with C.J. Stroud. The Colts, I would say, when, when they saw C.J. Stroud, what was that, week two, he played well at times in that game. I think over the course of that game, I felt differently about him. And then the next week, it was a little more, and then a little more, and then a little more the week after that. That was because that's the growth happening before your eyes. I think that Anthony Richardson would have had a very similar trajectory had he been able to play this year. So they did lose out on a lot, and and there is a reality that, yeah, I mean, look, Shane Steichen's not going to be a first-year coach. The schedule may be a little tougher. Uh, They could be coming off a playoff season, right? All those things will raise expectations. It is what it is, but I also think – I don't think you hesitate to to put that on his plate because the one thing he is, in my estimation, is – and from what I've observed, Anthony Richardson is pretty unflappable. Okay, lastly, Stephen, you did do what for New Year's? Nothing, nothing. We we had New Year's at home. Uh, kids were all here, son, girlfriend, everybody. So it was good. And you know what? I had worked all day. I was tired. I barely made it to midnight. I'm really sad, man. <laughs> <laughs> Pathetic. Well, the weather wasn't great. It did kind of feel you know, everybody. Every the whole city petered out by like four because of the Colts game, right? And everybody's like, "Yeah, we're good. Right, we're good." Yeah, right. I mean, I had to. I had to scrape my windows when I got to my car at like eight o'clock. I was like at the stadium. I was like, really, this is what we're doing. So yeah, it was, it was not exactly a very inviting night to go hang out. So anyway. well, and, and honestly, you know what, you, when my situation, you can't make new year's plans. Cause I mean, look, I've done this long enough to know, I don't know what my day is going to look like. Right. It turned out to be fine, but I, you never know. Right. So. Well, of course, now it might be on Saturday when you're scraping the windshield. Saturday night, 8.15, prime time for the Colts and the Texans. Troy Aikman, Joe Buck, we now know, will be on the broadcast for that. Stephen Holder will have all the coverage on ESPN.com. Stephen, appreciate it as always. All right, you got it. All right, Stephen Holder from ESPN.